another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. It's an early cast today, Nick. Uh, it is, it is 10.30 my time. It is 8.30 your time. But as they say, the early bird gathers no moss and the rolling stone catches the worm. All right? Mm-hmm. I think we're at our best in the in the early hours. I feel more alert, at least. Like, when we do, like, an afternoon cast, I feel like I'm a little punchy uh, mm-hmm. in a good way sometimes. Like, the the Prometheus episode, that was an afternoon show, and I won't lie. I was a bit harsh. <laughs> I was a bit harsh in that movie than I would have if I was maybe like, all right, we're awake, we're fresh, we're energized. It's a new uh, day. Night shows. Yeah, yeah. We've got a couple night shows. I think the, the first Josh pretty was a night show. And that was um, an event, to say the least. Yeah, I think the the, the first Josh Brady was at night. Uh, might have involved some brown liquor on my end. Like, so I, I think it got a little rowdy that first episode. Yeah, for sure. We've definitely become more nuanced as we talk about the Truman Show. You know, two weeks in a row with all these big <laughs> philosophical themes. This seems like the place to do it. We're like the kids in college now who like took a class and they're like, oh man, why? We could party, bro, but we're all going to die one day. And it's just, this is where we are now with the show. Yeah, we're too busy spending our time reading the works of Eric von Daniken. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, I, I don't know if he's alive or not, but I'd love to get him on the show just to be like, hey, man, like, what's this about? Like, you're telling me that you just think that, like, giant alien men came down and made us? What's, what, what, what? Eric von Daniken, if you're alive, longtime listener, friend of the show, come on he's- over. You're always invited. He'd be like, I love that. Thank you. What if he sounds exactly like Colonel Tom Parker? That'd be a great twist if he's like the real life inspiration for Tom Hanks' performance. I I kind of want to just envision him sounding like my Ridley Scott impression. That's how I want to have him sound. British Nick Nolte? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're doing the Truman Show this week. Uh, it is my pick, so I will explain why we're doing it. I I didn't really know where to go. For this week, we we talked about basketball last week, and then I looked into like the history of that movie, and then I thought about that movie, and then I remembered that movie. <laughs> it was like you know, <laughs> might be better off if we pick a better movie than basketball. So I, I kind of jumped shit pretty quickly. Have you seen basketball? Oh God, not for a long, long time. Long time. Yeah, it's, it's been great. at least like a decade. There's a great Joey Diaz story. Shout out Joey Diaz, a stand-up comedian involving like his time on the set of basketball in stealing shoes and this whole racket. So like it is a movie that I am conscious of and like have thought about recently. Um, but it's not <laughs> it's not something that I return to on a regular basis. Well, because it's like it's when Matt and Trey, Matt Stone and Trey Parker are like really at the culmination of their powers in Hollywood's like, all right, how do we capitalize on South Park or turn them into like household names? between that and team America, but basketball is like the worst example. Cause they don't write or direct it or like have any real creative yeah. involvement. But anyways, and then I was, I was thinking about a couple other movies and then I saw that the Truman show turned 25 last week. I was like, Oh, that's a great movie. I haven't thought about in a long, long time, but I remember being very fond of it. I, I always enjoy Jim Carrey. I like when we talk about artists and filmmakers we haven't talked about yet. Add someone new to the canon, and I picked it. And I also thought it fit in pretty well <laughs> after last week when we were talking about creationism and existentialism. And I was like, I guess it's just like June 
questions of like sanity and morality and all these things. Yeah, why not? I mean, we're totally qualified to answer those kinds of questions. I mean, suffice to say, we have PhDs in like every single thing you could possibly think of: literature, science, mm. theology. Mm. We're just mm. we're just geniuses, uh, certifiably. <laughs> oh man! I mean, if you really want to get down to the brass tacks of it, does anybody have the right to tell us, Josh? I mean, where we came from. <laughs> Moving on, the Truman Show. Eric von Dynakid, come onto the show. Here he is. Uh, when's the first time you saw the Truman Show? Actually, I'm gonna make a confession. The first time I saw this movie was probably like less than five years ago. It was wow. a huge. Yeah, huge blind spot for me. I'd never seen this. Um, partially, I think we can kind of get into that now. I'm not a huge fan of like uh, Adam Sandler, Michael Myers, Jim Carrey slapstick. You know, like Ace Ventura. Yeah. You know, I haven't. I've never seen all of Happy Gilmore. I've never seen Billy Madison all the way through. I know I'm gonna get dragged for the coals <laughs> for this probably, but you know, by the six people who listen to this podcast. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of one of those things where I always enjoy the more like. They're soft or um, like emotionally challenged performances from comedians at this time where like, you know, I know you're a big champion of Punch Drunk Love or I really like this movie or, you know, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. Or like, I think it's great when Michael Myers puts on a bunch of makeup and masks and wigs. He's the only one who's comedy might still work for me. I mean, the Austin Powers movies, are, I think, have a really strong British kind of tongue-in-cheek humor to them that is just timeless you know it's just those jokes yeah. don't really get old but like i've always enjoyed these performances out of those guys so much more than anything in like the slapstick realm i like you and i guess if you're getting crucified i'll be right like you know how jesus had the thief to the right me and you were on that cross i don't like any 90s comedy either i don't know if it's just because like we were really born and raised after the fact or what but like i've never seen happy gilmore i watched the water boy i think as a kid and I was like, this is fine. I, I love Dumb and Dumber, but I haven't come back to it in years and years and years because it's just like, I, I, I'm just going to watch them like fake taking a shit again and then slap someone and then like poison that guy with the hot sauce. So I just kind of jump ship at a certain point. Um, but I didn't see the Truman Show until I think high school. Um, I don't know why my teachers were like, oh, let's watch the Truman Show because it really has nothing to do with like any of the topics we were probably learning about. Because I don't think my teachers at the time were like, let's talk about if God's real or not. And what does it mean to be God's creation? It was more just like, hey, let's read uh, Bison Men. And ah. So I don't know why the school thought to put this on for us, but they did. Did you guys read uh, 1984? Yes, we did. So, so maybe that's why. So we did kind of a thing in my class, at least, where it was like, 94 and then we watched <clears throat> the Truman Show to me like the, the parallel to the two maybe not necessarily in the sense of creationism more to me was like social constructs and control right where we're all kind of more a lot kind of on more or less on this conveyor belt of like it, people call people wages but you know like things like that where we're just kind of like eat sleep work repeat you know like there's not really a lot of breaking the milieu in between so that's where I kind of fell more so when I watch this movie still, then maybe the creationism, but with the Kristoff character, which I'm sure we'll talk about later there, I feel like some of those things are, are definitely there. Well, yeah, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but the ending, especially when he's like, Oh, like I, I was there to watch your first step and all these sort of things, the way he's positioned of, he's just speaking from the sun very mm -hmm. much felt like a very Christian sort of idea to me. But yeah, sure. I, I, I think I came back to this movie over the years 
And I was like, man, that is a good movie. Like, I didn't really appreciate it back then for what it was. Uh, but coming back to it this week, I was really, and I don't know how you feel since you've kind of come back to it for the show. I was really felt this is a, a great movie, quite honestly. Yeah, totally. What a brilliant script, too. Like, oh, yeah. You know, again, I don't want to like get too far ahead of ourselves because I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about this stuff. But like, I didn't realize how brilliant this movie was. I mean, just like, I think we just talked about it off mic too. It's like there's a lot of subtle like hints that things are askew, and like you said, you know, Truman's kind of already a little wary of the world that he's living in. I never really realized all the, like the hints that are really planted throughout the movie. So going back with like fresh eyes and maybe like a little older. Um, was really kind of interesting. And I think this is, I'll go ahead and say it, my favorite Jim Carrey performance. I mean, the only real competition, I think, is Eternal Sunshine. Like, like <laughs> that's not a slam, because I think his comedy roles are definitely great work by him, but it's not of the same dramatic level. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I think the, <laughs> this movie is funnier because I'm older now. Did you feel that at all? Because, like... Maybe it's because I'm jaded, but like when I was watching the movie and like they push him into the product placement, or Meryl's like, "Hey, look at this knife I got! Isn't it super?" But a uh, Moco Coco, like that made mm-hmm. me laugh more because as an older person, I've now realized how heavy product placement is in everything we do. I've just like you'll be watching movies, be like, "Oh, look at my iPhone 14! It's great!" Mm-hmm. So that really made me like laugh now because this is 1998 and this movie, as we'll talk about very, very later on, but I guess now as well, but it's so ahead of its time uh, in terms of where culture is headed. I have that in here too. Like, I, I think this movie might be the most like unrelatable. We were watching uh, some of the commanders leading up to the show and somebody said that, and I thought that was a really great point, but I think that society might have caught up to it at this point that it is almost like, yeah. I mean, look, you, we have the Kardashians, and like, uh, uh, what is the difference between that and the Truman Show, really, if you boil them down? We're like the real housewives. We're like, they have spinoffs now about like, this girl owns a bar. So let's take who were once her normal employees and now turn them into seven season like superstars about like, like what's going on in their lives and are they cheating with their spouses or whatever. Hey, you know what I'd like to watch eight seasons of? On Brokers. You know, it's just like, what? Tow <laughs> <laughs> truck, tow truck driver. And what's so sad, uh, I don't want to say sad, because, like, you know, those people get their their check and everything, and it's great. But, like, Truman is a creation. Like, he is a created character, in a sense, because Mm -hmm. everything around him is designed. Whereas what entertainment has done now is they've taken just, like, normal people off the streets who have something kind of interesting about them. And they just thrust them into fame. And like, ah, uh, I don't know, figure it out. Fuck it. Like, we're, we're just, we'll profit off of you. You'll profit. But like, maybe you get addicted to drugs. Ah, uh, we don't know. Who cares? And there's a lot of undercurrents in that in this movie, actually, with the character of Marlon, which we'll talk about, um, that I found really interesting. And like, this whole backstory that Noah Emmerich made up about like, well, he's addicted to coke and like, he's been a druggie for years. And also, that makes me think about how much darker this movie is now that I'm older. Of like I, I put myself in Truman's shoes now as an older person, and I'm like, that is a nightmare. It's it's a it's a nightmare disguised as a comedy, but yeah, the ending is is yeah. really if you think about it, like I love movies that make me think past the screen, 
where like what happens to Truman after? Like how does somebody who's been basically well not basically but has been enclosed and sheltered off their whole entire life, he's never going to be able to trust anybody again. He's never going to be able to love naturally again. You know, like he's going to be terrified every single day at like how the world really works and how cruel people can be to one another. So to me, I found that to be really interesting too. It's like there's so much going on. Like what was Truman like before? We get flashbacks. We get you know kind of the meat and potatoes, the things we need to know about Truman. But like was high school like for Truman? You know, like what was elementary school? Like I would love to have seen all those. I love like what my, one of my favorite things about flashbacks is everything in the script is so clean and tight that it always serves a purpose, but it doesn't feel like it's doing it really hard in your face. You know, I think about the scene with the magazine strips where Truman's putting those in at the beginning. We're like, well, that's a plan payoff. Like, why is he doing that? And then immediately his boss comes in and tells him he needs to take the ferry. We then learn that he has aquaphobia. Like it all like is so congruent and like flows together so well that like you just don't even really notice like the seams of the storytelling it's just beautiful so i thought that was really well done and like the the fact of the flashbacks doing the same kind of purpose but not just being a flashback for the sake of a flashback but being a flashback to inform on the character in like a ponderance or in or remembrance of his subconscious which i really thought was awesome too well, I love the one where he's just in school and he's like, I want to be an explorer like Ferdinand Magellan. And there's such like a smile on his face. And then the teacher pulls out the map and is like, well, actually, everything's already explored. Yeah, there's no need for that. <laughs> yeah, with the very first scene where he's pretending to be an astronaut. Because that's the only way he can explore anything is through his mind's eye at that point in life because everything else is so closed off to him quite literally. And it's just... <laughs> It's really fucked up. They do this, man. <laughs> like, like there's the one throwaway line in this movie where I think it's Christoph, where he's like, "Yeah, we grabbed an unwanted pregnancy, and then we just turn him into Truman, and that's like who this person is. He never knows his real mother. He'll never know his real father, and he just enters the like real world with no idea of who he is or where he is, and like all these formative experiences that he can look back on as an adult are all fake." Yeah, everything's contrived. It's the, it's not abuse in the sense like Truman has everything he needs. He has a beautiful home, like lives in a nice neighborhood, has a wife, but like it's the most like evil and ultimate form of emotional abuse that you could think of. <laughs> you know, I mean, like unquestionably, because like, I, imagine if I told you, Nick, that like I was. Just... <laughs> I'm just an actor. <laughs> Nothing we've ever had is genuine. I actually fucking hate you, like the way that Hennigan does. And I'm only here because I'm paid. <laughs> like, I'd be like, well, that, that checks out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm surprised he got paid as much as he did. He did a shitty job. It took 22 years to get this? I know. <laughs> uh, this is the third Josh they've had to cast. It's incredible. <laughs> um, but it's just like, it's so messed up. And I think the Warren character is the one like shining light in this movie, the Warren slash Sylvia character to be like, when she's running towards the steps, they make it clear that she's in L.A. Truman's house well, world uh, is in L.A. So she must be going out to try and meet him. And that's the only thing that can give me a little bit of hope. But otherwise, this dude, like, he's going to have people following him all around. He has no anonymity. He's the most recognizable face on planet Earth. He has to like, – he'd write the best memoir ever if he could in like a day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's just a really, really great movie that I think – touches on a lot of things that a lot of people don't think about the first time you watch them, but then once you come back to it later on and be like, oh, you fun- you suddenly feel these different things about it. 
and and the other thing too is I love all the visual nuggets too. Like, oh wow, I didn't notice there's a camera there, or you know, when the lightning flashes, you realize the moon is way too close to like from to the source of the light. It's really great. So I loved all that stuff too, like the actual visual cues that something is wrong. Peter Weir, uh, we'll talk about him more when we get to like when he's announced as a director and everything about that. But like, I really appreciated how he films this movie because and there's a lot of directors that could take like the fisheye lens that he's doing, which is for what those people who don't know is like you're just using the camera as the camera. <laughs> I mean, can you explain any support than that, Nick? Um, well, like, just like, I guess fisheye lenses give like this apparatus as if you're looking through like a people almost, if that would like right. for, a, yes. for anybody who's visually kind of trying to think of what it might look like, like maybe some of the early 1990s skate videos use them very heavily. So anything like by Spike Jones has a lot of fisheye lens. And the way weird uses that lens, you could use it to like stabilize, like you'd have it on a very steady thing and then we're falling around like this, but he always has it like as a pin or it's always like a logical place that someone would hide a camera. And because of that, the whole movie feels even more voyeuristically than just like the plot. Cause I feel uncomfortable when I watch this movie almost because like the camera's always like looking up because of where it's placed or here or there. Like it never feels like, Oh, this is a fun show I'm watching or a fun movie I'm watching. There's always this feeling of like, man, this just doesn't feel right. Like I'm getting jostled around all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess I'm shooting all my bullets to start start off early, but yeah, I, I kind of felt the same way. I thought it does a great job with, like, voyeuristic angles, like, the camera's always peering through objects or around them, or, you know, I love the thing with the keyhole slot, or, like, Peter Ware talked about in the making of the film, they placed a lot of, like, the fisheye lens cameras, those setups, in, like, objects, so, like, in a briefcase, in a coffee mug, or in the cabinets, like, stuff like that, I just... I agree with you. It's really great. It adds another layer to the film, but also like keeping with like how they made a world that seems so unrealistic, realistic with like, Oh, we have over 5,000 cameras. It's like, Oh my God. Like they, they did a great job of like, everything is just so works so well in that sense. Like, I believe, I, be, I believe there's cameras in Truman's house, you know? Yes. And the other way that he uses the camera really well, I find to like capture that feeling of you're watching a show is like it's almost very thriller esque, like when he's just walking down the street and you have that long shot uh, of like someone just watching him through like what looks like just like a camera, and it's just like it's very eerie and upsetting. And like I, I appreciate that Peter Weir used the direction of this movie, the camera of this movie, to not just make you feel like you're watching like a sitcom. It feels much more that you're watching like the conversation, <laughs> but it's like with everyone being like, "Oh, Truman, have a great day." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do we want to do the 60 second or less recap? Because I feel like we don't need to with this movie. You know, Truman Show is pretty self explanatory. It's self explanatory, and I feel like everyone has seen it. You know, I, I, I out of the loop having <laughs> waited till my mid 20s <laughs> to have seen it. So, yeah. So we'll just right kind of jump into the, the pre production cycle of it all and get into it. And it's uh, it starts in 1991. Screenwriter Andrew Nichol, he pens a one-page treatment of a film then titled The Malcolm Show. Uh, this treatment is very different from the finished product that we get. It's set in New York. It has a lot more in common with like a science fiction thriller. And that's one of the first pivot points in this movie that we really have to talk about is like, as I was watching this, I can easily see how this could be a science fiction thriller that like is starring like Matt Damon in 1998. Yeah, or like it could like kind of like diverge into a Twilight Zone episode. That's kind of like what I yeah. thought of too. Or it's just kind of 
more about like the suspense in the I don't know like uneasiness of being watched than it is about the psychological awakening of breaking free of being watched. I guess I think that I think there's a lot of really like strong messages about like society in this movie if you really look into it. Oh, I do too, and I, and I want to talk about those later. But like, I think this is a really important choice too by by uh, Nickel and then Peter Weir later on. Because like, if you just think about a, a show set in New York City, immediately the color grade is going to be very grays and browns and blacks and blues. And compare that to where the setting of the Truman Show and making this Sea Haven, which is like this magical town, it looks a lot like the Barbie promo images they've shown of Barbie Land actually. Like, I don't know does. if you've gotten that vibe. Yeah. <laughs> like everything's bright. Everything's like really well lit and saturated really high. Um, so that's a great change. Uh, and anyways, Nichols treatment enticed the producer, Scott Rudin in 1993, he purchased a script for a million dollars and there's a later agreement made that Paramount will distribute. Part of that deal though, was that Nickel really wanted to direct this movie at the time. I think he's in his twenties to thirties. He hasn't really made a movie by then. He's going to go on to do some stuff. We'll talk about that in a second. But Paramount is just like, like they clearly like the script, but they're not sure they want to give, I would say, this brilliant idea to a guy who's like, hey, I'll do this. And his estimated budget around that was $80 million. So giving $80 million to a first-time director, Paramount eventually was like, hey, we'll, we'll cut you out of the deal for a sizable check. You can still be involved, still want you as a writer, but don't want you to direct it. And I, I, I feel like that must be an awful feeling for Andrew it's an awful feeling yeah i'm sure that that's kind of tough to like have your project maybe taken not maybe but definitely taken out of your hands and but that's it's the business right like unfortunately as much as that sucks and it's the business and the good news is he goes to direct gattaca which i think is a pretty good movie he directs the word of war with nicholas cage pretty solid movie oh it's got a yeah, he's got a couple other things he's done. So like, it, it, it's I feel bad for him, but thank God he like didn't just rot on the vine or whatever. So that's good. Well, and I don't think this movie would have been good. Like, this movie needs the patient and steady hands of like a veteran director, or, like a sage director. It's not. I don't think this is a really ambitious first feature. I don't think that it would have been nearly the movie if it directed it personally. I think the other thing that is important about Andrew Nichol kind of not directing this movie is he probably doesn't come up with the idea of Jim Carrey. Because if you're a first-time director with that big a budget, and he's automatically going to think that his idea of New York and all these sort of things in the science fiction thriller are more apt than what this movie becomes. So it's almost a case of like, I feel bad for you, but the best thing happened, which is that you stuck on as the writer, but other people brought in better ideas. Sure, everything falls into place for a reason. Uh, the directors that Paramount starts going after, they look for A-list directors. And the first guy, <laughs> I, I read this and I was like, excuse me? Their first choice was Brian De Palma? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it makes sense from, from some of the voyeuristic things we talked about, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think you would have done a great job with that. But I think what I love about The Truman Show is there's a soft, tender almost cartoonish element to the movie and Jim Carrey's performance. And I think you lose a lot of that if you, if it's Brian De Palma, you know, it's, it's the woman wielding the knife on Jim Carrey in that scene, his wife wielding the knife, Meryl, the knife on him instead of him. Kind of like 
freaking out. So I think you lose a little bit of the tenderness if he's the director, but I do see it, you know, working. And I wonder if at this point they were still kind of maybe thinking of doing this as the sci-fi thriller more kind of dark project because at this point Brian De Palma's not doing much besides making pretty mediocre to bad movies. I mean in 1999 he's got Snake Eyes which stars Nicolas Cage as an undercover cop who gets caught up in like a gambling ring I think which is a pretty decent movie. I haven't seen that in forever in 1998. And then 2000 he makes Mission to Mars which I remember watching on HBO as a young kid and even being like this movie sucks. So <laughs> little little uh sliding doors there. Well, De Palma, and I haven't seen a lot of his movies, so I don't want to judge, but he always felt like kind of a harsh filmmaker to me. Of like, maybe he's kind towards his subjects, but the feelings are never like very strong or sentimental. Uh, and he's coming off of like Carlito's way around then. So like, I, I'm trying to picture him like sliding into this movie, and I kind of just can't. Like, I I think he'd make it more the conversation than he would. Uh, I don't know what, what a good comparison to the Truman Show otherwise is, but. Don't know the conversation, Josh. Good pull, babe. I mean, I what can I say? I'm a good, I'm good, I'm good at this sort of thing. You know, I've I've seen a couple movies here or there. <laughs> the good news is that the Palm and Paramount, while under negotiation, things kind of break down. He leaves his talent agency, United Talent Agency, in 1994, and so Paramount is like, ah, shit. <laughs> ah, shit. <laughs> and they start going like, well, we still want an A-list director because we really like this script. And so they consider the following directors and I'm going to let the audience know, and this is a wild list. I am, I am still processing it and we'll continue to process it, process it. It is Tim Burton. It's Sam Raimi. It's Terry Gilliam. It's David Cronenberg, Barry Sonnenfeld and Steven Spielberg. They're all like, Hey, you know, all of these eight directors that are all wildly different than the next guy. Let's all consider them. Let's just do it. Why not? I see some connective tissue in the first three. Um, yes. David Cronenberg movie. I mean, it's Truman has a camera up his butt and <laughs> he's got to remove it from his stomach. It turns into a like body horror film. Um, I think with Steven Spielberg, it probably gets a little too tender. But I mean, I'd, I'd love to discuss the first three at least. So let's talk about Burton. Uh, so let's let's not let's just get around. He would have cashed Johnny Depp and Truman like. <laughs> <laughs> Like it would have been the Johnny Depp Truman show and he would have been like isolated. And I don't Smoky. think Truman would have a wife. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm an insurance agent and I really don't like it, but it pays the bills. Stuck here for years traveling, trying to get free from the dome. Is that Ridley Scott? Is Ridley Scott back? What was that? Oh, that's, that's Johnny. That's Johnny Depp. Okay. Johnny that's just Johnny Depp. Okay. <laughs> My attempt. But I, the the Tim Burton Truman Show, it's interesting because he's probably he's how far away is Ed Wood at this point? Because that I don't know. feels the, the thing that I would say that I feel with this would be Edward Scissorhands, yeah. an isolated almost outsider who is aware of his surroundings and how strange they are and how different he is from everyone else. The kind of plastic, waxy, suburbia, bright pastel colors of like the Edward Scissorhands neighborhoods and stuff like that in the school. So I could see it, you know, I, with him. I just wonder if, again, it's just like, I feel like Peter Ware just like strikes this great neutral, um, like perfect balance where everything, all of the elements of like the tragedy or the comedy or like the kind of cartoonish like suburbia elements never feel too heavy. And I feel with either Tim Burton or like any of the other guys on this list, you just get too much of one thing. Whereas it's just like a perfect balance with where. 
in my opinion. I I would have been really curious to see what Sam Raimi could have done with this. Because I think... Really? Yeah, because like... Say what you will about Sam Raimi at this point in his career in the 90s. Uh, Spider-Man is obviously a little ways away. But when I go back to the Spider-Man movies now, I do find them so warm and kind and like sentimental. Like it, it's kind of hokey and right. cheesy. Um, like uh, like Tobey Maguire, <laughs> he's not he's not the best actor, and I wouldn't I wouldn't praise him. But there is like a gentleness to him in those movies and like that whole tone. I think I think Tobey Maguire's performance in Spider-Man Two is good. I'm gonna say that I just rewatched it it's recently. Great. I'm going to go on a whim and say it's good. So this is what I'll say about Sam Raimi, because I, I love talking about this stuff. It's getting me hype. I love his – I think when we're talking about all these guys too is he would have the inventiveness. He's always like trying to do weird things with the camera. Let's put it on a wire and throw it across this room. Let's spin the camera around 180 degrees. He's always trying to do weird stuff like that. So I think in that sense, you would have had a lot of really cool stuff visually. Um, the only thing is I just don't think this is the type of story he's great at telling. Like he's good when he's like going ninety miles per hour. We're this movie is a rocket ship, right? We're we're on point A. We yeah. got to fight the bad guys to get to point B, and like in between there will be some funny slapstick and jokes. Like that's when he, I think Sam Raimi is operating at his best. And I just don't think there's enough of any of those things in the script for him to have like, I don't know, bombed on to. So in in the nineties, he's coming off of the Quick and the Dead ninety five, a Simple Plan ninety eight. For the love of the game in '99, simple plan, so underrated. I think that's a good point you just made, and I would say also, I think if you get Jim Carrey in the Truman Show with Sam Raimi, I think it's way slapstickier. And I mm. think, as we'll talk about later, that's what makes it such a good Jim Carrey performance is that he's holding on to these elements of like the Jim Carrey we all know and love at that time, but he's dialing them all down to always like feel in with the character. Or like re reshaping them, right? Like I think of the scene when at the end when he's screaming on the belt, like he's like, "You're gonna have to kill me!" Like that's no different than like, not no different. Like don't I don't want to be smirched the guy because he should have been nominated, but like it's just like turning Ace Ventura this way as uh, on the puzzle piece, you know? It's just reshaping, and I think that's really so so great, and just shows how talented he is of an actor. Spielberg Truman Show, I kind of. I kind of fuck with it kind of hard. You're you're turning your head like, eh, you're shaking it. Why? I don't know. I don't want to be like the zag on Spielberg. Yeah, I don't want to be the zag on Spielberg because that's such a dumb take Lord. But this movie's too sweet if it's Steven Spielberg. You know, Kristoff has like a backstory yeah. as to why he's mean and <laughs> him and, you know, Truman and the father son connection is just way stronger if it's him. I just, I feel like the family stuff gets in the way more. It's just, I think that it, it's a little too f friendly and kid oriented. That's the thing about this movie. It's like you could show this to a 12 year old, they probably wouldn't get a lot of it, but it's not like you're going to scar them or show them something that like is going to like do detriment. If anything, it's probably going to maybe open up their eyes a little bit to like product placement or like how phony we are with one another, maybe. But like right. you can also watch this at 35 and feel the same exact way or learn completely different things so i think with spielberg you just kind of go down this lane where maybe truman becomes a little bit too hokey and wholesome i think if it's a spielberg version the romance between him and sylvia slash lauren is played up a lot heavier mm. i think it'd be like she's in the universe and that she would be an actress that turns and then they have to escape together that's a good point 
Spielberg is just yeah, like I think this movie does the right job of being like, okay, let's be warm and gentle and kind, but not to the detriment of the script and not to like bend the ideas of like this is a perfect world where like all these cameras are like magnificently placed. No one blinks at the idea of, of conning this guy. <laughs> you know the other thing too, I just kind of had kind of pop in my head. Steven Spielberg doesn't do alone well. Think about That's all his movies. Like, like, all his movies are like a group. Like E.T., Saving Private Ryan, at least all the best ones. The Fablemans, you know, Jaws, all the great movies, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, really kind of involve not an ensemble cast, but there's always a group of people, a family trying to get through. Whereas I think Truman, the Truman Show is a really solo journey, like one man's experience. Obviously, it's called the Truman Show. I mean, dude. <laughs> I mean, the dude's literally trapped inside a giant metal dome, and no one else is there to look out for him but himself. Honestly, like, and, and I think that's one of the like brutal things about this movie that I really appreciate. Uh, now that we're even off the track, but like, there's no one in this movie who's like, "Hey, man, this is wrong. We should stop this." Like, they're like, "Well, we can't kill him at sea. We'd stop the show." Like, it's a very nihilistic, cold movie in that regard. Even say, like, Marlon, his best friend, who I think does truly love Truman, is never like, when Truman runs away, he's not like, good, like, yes, I'm glad he's getting away. He's like, ah, shit, we gotta find him. Yeah, not only that, too. I mean, I you talked about how cold and callous this movie can be. I think, of like, one of my favorite lines in the movie is when um, but Baker Hall comes on, who's, like, the big big wig of the studio and he's yeah. like we can't just let him die on camera and he was like he was and then christoph says he was born on camera it's just like oh my god this guy is like yeah it is is gone past the role of just being one of the best showrunners of all time to like absolute psychopath i think everything worked out as it, i mean clearly but i mean spielberg comes out with saving private Ryan in 98 so he that same year is, is the truman show so if you don't get him doing truman show you don't get saving private Ryan until later uh, Sam Raimi goes on to do what Sam Raimi does. Every, everything works out. Like I, I, that's the other thing we should also say. These are just like considerations. No one was under negotiations. No one was like, oh, it was going to be this guy. And then he pulled out. It's just like, hey, we, we thought about this list and we kind of didn't really go anywhere with it. Yeah, it's super fun to talk about, though, and like kind of like envision what, you know, a Steven Spielberg Truman Show or a Tim Burton Truman Show would have looked like. I think Marvel's What If Season 2 should just be What If Steven Spielberg or like <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to lie to you though I saw a David Cronenberg Truman show in my head it was like can I can I get that movie can I why not like let's just do it like people would be walking to the street like the characters in Hellraiser 3 like cameras for eyes it'd be really <laughs> cool it'd be awesome like I kind of like want to see it because like Truman would end up having to kill people to get out it'd be ah you gotta do can can it we got to do Canada's finest David Cronenberg soon. We haven't done a, a Cronenberg flick. Or Canada's finest. You said Canadians. I know I did it on purpose. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, anyways, Paramount went back to Nickel after all this kind of goes up in smoke. And they're like, hey, like, what do you think about this? Because you're still the writer. This is still your baby. And he goes, oh, what about Peter Weir? Uh, and experience is obviously attracted to Paramount at this point because Peter Weir is an established filmmaker. He's been in the business a long time. And then they were like, oh, awesome, because he goes, I could take your $80 million budget and put it to $60 million. And Paramount's like, yes, we love that. <laughs> Shave $20 million off our costs. Yeah, anything for us to have our gold-plated toilets and our – we need to keep those upkeeps on our yachts so they'll be ready for us to go to Turks and Caicos. Yes, yeah. 
that's that's like 10 things I could do now. And it's just like, oh, congrats, guys. Uh, we'll just make a great movie. What's so funny about Peter Weir is that I think everyone, like even casual viewers uh, or just like anyone really in the world, has seen like at least one of his movies, but they actually have no idea who Peter Weir is. You know what I mean? Like, I think people are hard pressed to get through high school without seeing like Dead Poet Society or like The Truman Show or then even later in life going to find out like Master Commander or Witness. Totally. I thought that was one of the best things that you wrote in the notes was like, yeah, Peter Weir might be one of the most underrated guys of like the past 30, 40 years of like big Hollywood projects that you just don't think of his name being attached to. And I also really kind of like you and I were talking about off mic, some of those earlier stuff like Picnic a Hanging, Hanging Rock, where it's like maybe the story isn't great in that movie, but like his sen- his visual sense is so strong and like that's a great vibes movie i hate that term but it is a great hangout movie to just visually stare at and just be like oh my god like some of these shots look like victorian paintings so like while he also has this ability to kind of like chameleon into big projects i think he has the passion and maybe the thought process of like a independent filmmaker you know like i really think of that documentary that you put in the in the in the rundown here where he's talking about writing 10 page backstories for Christoph's yeah. character and like, like, all right, well, I want to think about like, how would he really go about finding Christoph was a independent filmmaker who made this kind of like cinema verte documentary about homeless people. And then he got funding from, you know, Oh, well people in Japan are really interested in this Truman show project and yeah. <laughs> how he would go about raising capital and all that stuff. I found that like, there's always a story to the story. And when the creative team really invests into that, the the great work rises to the surface, right? So I th- I think he's he's a brilliant filmmaker. He's retired now, so he's enjoying his 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 life, and I think that's awesome that he had a fulfilling and very rich career. I think Peter Weir is a director that like will go down to the annals of history, not as like anything important, uh, but to me at least, like he really does mean a lot to me because like a Dead Poet Society. Maybe I've mentioned this on the show, but I was nearing the end of high school. And I didn't really know what I wanted to be or do after that. And we watched Dead Poet Society in like the last couple of weeks of class. And I was like, oh shit, I should just become a teacher. Like I could be the Robin Williams. <laughs> you know, which that's kind of crazy to be like, Robin Williams, we're the same. Uh, but I was like, I could be Robin Williams for like a group of kids. That'd be awesome. And I went to my freshman year of college and was like, I'll be a teacher. And then I uh, I dealt with kids and said, nope, never mind. But <laughs> Dead Poet Society is quite honestly one of my favorite movies of all time. It is just – I don't know how you feel about it, uh, but it, it really is just like a great, great movie to me. It's a really, really good movie. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. It is one of those movies kind of like Glory where I feel like all of my like core memories are tied to school, which – kind of wait kind of bogs it down a little bit so it's a movie that i definitely probably should go and rewatch again but yeah i I haven't seen it in so long it it is amazing to me though again like you said you're like oh yeah peter Weir directed that or like a master and commander and like master and commander i just want to say too kind of a forgotten movie check that out that movie's amazing i want to now now that i've come back to the peter weir is a genius thing like Maybe I'll just go take a gander. But, like, we're not really selling this, like, properly either because, like, Peter Weir's films have a combined 32 BAFTA nominations and 11 BAFTA wins. He also has 29 Oscar nominations and six wins. So, like, this isn't just, like, blowing smoke at people's ass. 
Like he has more nominations than Kubrick or Hitchcock, I think, by a pretty wide margin. Yeah, definitely Kubrick. Probably Hitchcock too. Speaking of that, I just like to say since we're on the topic of Hitchcock now, and you know De Palma, a little kind of like a disciple of Hitchcock. uh, I was watching Psycho recut last night, like the the uncut version on uh, restored Blu-ray. I'd just like to say shout out to the dog Hitchcock. That movie is a masterpiece. Looks so great. Anthony Perkins, amazing performance. I mean, I just I wanted to shout out Hitchcock real quick. I'm I'm I might pick a Hitchcock movie (laughs) next week. Have you guys heard of this movie called Psycho? It's just kind of like it came out and went in the fifties, I guess. But it's great, like nineteen sixty, Josh. Sorry, <laughs> but yeah, I I just rewatched that. It looks beautiful. The sound on it is so good, man. Oh, the they did a great job. They they restored it to four surround sound from that original four track recordings. Come on wow. now, I love that stuff. Give it to me. Shout out all my dogs who love physical media. That's the end of my my psycho tangent. <laughs> I feel like this just ends with you, like in Rocky and Rocky Four, like on the mountain top, just shouting like Hitchcock. Like, no, just... no, I'll tell you how this ends. This ends with me in okay. a dark screening room, just fat and naked, watching movies nonstop with a huge scraggly beard, <laughs> like Howard, naked. like Leon, like Howard Hughes. <laughs> just Let's alone. Just go back to the the naked part. What's what? Like, you just watching movies, just like, oh, like Java. You just sitting there watching like Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah. Of right. Hitchcock anyway. I'm watching old 35 millimeter prints by myself. Long ass fingernails. <laughs> oh god damn. I mean you just said some vile things before we started recording again. On top of this, like I think you need like a psychological exam, dude. Oh, all right. Anyway. Peter Weir. Peter Weir, the last thing I'll say about him is like a person before we kind of delve into more like why he works with this movie so well, other than what we've talked about, is he's Australian. And so, again, we've talked about this a bunch on the show, but, like, some of the best American movies or properties, I think, of Succession, that's written by a British person, are done because an outsider can look at our culture and be like, oh, that's, I don't know why I'm about to do an Australian accent, but be like, that's fucked up, Mike, that's fucked up. And so, I don't know. Um, No comment on what that might have been. That might have been an attempt. Um, at an Australian accent, but you know, I just I think that's important to mention here, uh, because he can look at American TV and the way that we treat people and go like, oh, that's how this would work. Because like, there is like, Christoph could be an Australian to him, and that's like, oh, you know, that's whatever. I know that culture, but he's distinctively like, I'm gonna write a ten page story for this American guy. Totally, yeah, I think you nailed it with like that outsider's perspective of of being able to just maybe turn things on its ear and. You wind up having an audience that's going, huh, I never never thought about that that way, or I never looked at that way. That's interesting. When we assumed creative control, the first thing he talked about with Nickel was the script. And he's like, hey, I want to change the tone, number one, from like the darker science fiction thriller that we've talked about to more of a comedy. And he basically was like finding the lightness where Nickel found the darkness. And I think he might have added the Sylvia relationship. I don't know what he added or not, but there's no denying that like, the script is definitely funnier post weir and the idea to him was like we need to write a show the truman show that in a way that people would actually want to watch the truman show because otherwise you need to have to believe that the world is watching this guy's 24/7 movements and if it's him in like a dark depressing new york city science fiction thriller <laughs> i don't know how many people would be tuned into that furthermore do you think this movie is that funny i just wanted to ask you i don't think it's 
I think it's funny in its cynicism, but I don't think it's very funny by itself. Like, I, I don't... I chuckle at what Jim Carrey's doing sometimes. Like, I think about when him and Mero are doing, like, the roundabout. He's like, we could yeah. go to Mardi Gras! <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. like all the Carryism of it is really funny to me. But otherwise, I don't find it, like, hilarious, no. No, I don't either. I mean, I guess one thing, too, is um, as we were talking about it, I found I find some of the cutaways, which I think Sam Raimi would have been great at. I think like he does that really well in the Spider-Man movie where we cut away to like the people watching the Truman Show. Some of those movies are pretty funny. Moments are pretty funny. But on the whole, I didn't really laugh a lot watching this. Like, I don't find I don't I would not label this a comedy. Maybe it's, that's me, but. But I can see how what Peter Weir intends is to make the Truman Show, the actual show, it feel like a comfort show. Like I, I wouldn't go so far to say I would watch the Truman Show, but he does do a great job of making this feel like a Mister Rogers, like beautiful day in the neighborhood, everything's great, the sun is always shining. Truman is up to some yucks, <laughs> you know, like yes. oh, Wendy at work forgot her papers, and Truman's gonna rush out, but there's a meeting, like you know, there's something like silly to feel to this all. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I think we've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to belabor the point, but like Peter Weir is a very sentimental filmmaker to me, and he's always his movies always feel so easy to love. And I think about that a lot with Dead Poet Society and Robin Williams. I think about the relationship in Witness, where it could be a pretty kind of cold movie about, oh, I'm a New York detective coming to this small town and judging these people. But there's like a fondness and like an embracing to all of his movies, I feel, that really, really sell The Truman Show. And his sweetness is so crucial to all of the success that he has. And the last kind of note before we get to casting is that <laughs> Peter Weir made, Mike, made uh, Nickel write 16 drafts of the script before Ooh. he's like, we're good to go. <laughs> Wild. I mean, a new draft can be as simple as just changing a couple lines and a few words around, and then it's the 15th draft. But still, 16 drafts of anything. That's yeah, extensive, long labor-intensive period of time. There aren't many casting what-ifs for the Truman Show, and we'll talk about how they got the 16 drafts in a second. Uh, the only person we do know was kind of considered for the role other than Jim Carrey was Robin Williams. Uh, it, it makes some sense. You know, I, I think Robin Williams could definitely sell a, a Mr. Rogers type of thing with Truman. Um, and he also worked with Peter Weir with Dead Poet Society. But I just don't... Truman needs to be a younger man. I was just going to say that. I was sort of politely had to avoid ageism. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> but like Robin Williams is what, 45, 50 in 1990-something? Close to it, yeah, for sure. His, his Goodwill is a year before, and he already has that gray beard there. So I, I like Truman has Let's to not be... talk about Goodwill hunting. I'm going to start crying. Okay, sorry. It's not your fault. <laughs> um <laughs> Truman has to be a, a younger, like gentler, kinder soul that has much more room and hope to like have a brighter future. And I don't think you get that with Robin Williams because, like, again, not to be ages, but like Robin Williams, it's like, oh, my love of my life, I'll be united with her, and then we'll have like twenty to thirty good years together. Whereas Truman has a whole life in front of him once he escapes the Truman Show, and I think that's really vital to that character. I also think if it's Robin Williams, and again, not to be. It just but like I think in that part point of his career too, it's like that performance would come off a little bit more sad. Like yeah. you said, there's so much more abound for Truman at his age to live that it is more hopeful. So I think that the 
that's kind of it becomes a little bit more of a melancholy approach to Truman as a character. It's like, I need to get out of here because I don't know how much time I have like to enjoy my yeah. life and see the things I want to see. Whereas it's like for Truman, it's like, I just want to see Fuji. You know, there's like one very concrete or Fiji, sorry, uh, one concrete like place he wants to go to. And a person he wants to see to like spend the rest of his life with. Yes. Or just like the experience of like, I want to see the world. You know, and all these kind of feelings. Uh, and Peter Weir doesn't kind of get to Carrie until he watches Ace Ventura. And he sees very Chaplin-esque things in the movie and Jim Carrey's performance, which I, I haven't seen Ace Ventura, so I can't really speak to that. But it's pretty obvious that, like, Peter Weir's like, all right, I want Jim Carrey. And the only problem is that Jim Carrey's schedule was so slammed that production has to wait a whole year for Jim Carrey. And that is partly why you get 16 drafts. Because they have a whole year to wait. And Peter Weir is like, I want to write the best script possible. I want to think about everything. And he writes that 10-page thing you said about Kristoff and like his whole backstory. And so this is a very thought-out movie. Uh, and I, I want to talk about Jim Carrey's like 90s. Because we talked about a Rumble Fish, like the best director runs of, of like a four-year span. Uh, here's Jim Carrey's work from 94 to 98. Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Batman Forever, Ace Ventura 2, The Cable Guy, Liar Liar, and The Truman Show. It's one of the hottest runs of all time. And like there was quite a few in the 90s. You think about Will Smith, Denzel, him, Tom Cruise. Like we we've talked a lot on the show about how there's a lot of big runs in the 90s. Adam Sandler had a had a pretty hot run too with his comedic stuff. But it's like I, I don't think there's anyone bigger in that realm when it comes to like comedic stars and Jim Carrey in that run in the 90s. And he, like, felt so, like, pure, almost, of just, like, I don't think Hollywood had another Jim Carrey at that time, because, like, maybe Robin Williams is, is close, but, like, the way Carrey, like, expresses himself physically and, like, the facial movements he has and the eyebrow-level control he has, it's just, like, insane work that he does kind of throughout the 90s, and he just becomes, like, one of the biggest comedy actors alive. Yeah, the physicality of I think too is is the big thing for me of like whether it's this or Ace Ventura or whatever it is like you're saying he's it's almost like Jack Nicholson in some regards where it's mm. like the things he can do with his face are just so expressive and bombastic that like they kind of like elevate those performances into a cartoon um cartoonish kind of performance. I guess the thing that I I think is a little bit more impressive to me about Jim Carrey's whole thing is like it seems to me like one of the producers on this film was talking about how like a lot of like comedic people are very self-loathing or like mm. kind of erratic whereas Jim Carrey has had the ability to throw himself into all these kind of insane like zany roles whether it's the mask or this or man on the moon playing Andy Kaufman and like like full method in basically becoming Andy Kaufman, he never lo lost himself. You know what I mean? Like you said, there's something like there's a tenderness and there's a real element to Jim Carrey for somebody who plays such off kilter and strange and, and over the top characters, even the Grinch, like, right? Like I think of Jim Carrey when I think of the Grinch. So to be able to still kind of like stay grounded in reality in your personal life and have all these like, this crazy filmography of of you know bright pastels and pinks and yellows and and purples and and you know magentas are the kind of the shades you paint yourself in is pretty impressive to me. 
what is your Carrie relationship? Like, I, I obviously we don't watch a lot of '90s stuff, but like, where did you kind of first encounter him? And like, do you do you love him as an actor? Where do you feel? So I remember the first Jim Carrey movie I saw was Ace Ventura, and my friend brought it over to my house on VHS, and we weren't supposed to watch it just because it was Ooh, kind. It's kind was. of like yeah, you know what I mean. And like we got you know um, a little time not alone but like without supervision for a period of time <laughs> i knew that was gonna pause um so we got, we weren't supervised for a period of time so we went and we watched it and i remember like you know he goes out of the mechanical rhino's butt and like how like hilarious i thought that was as a young you know six-year-old so that was like my first encounter with him but like i've again i've always really more appreciated and gone back to the dramatic roles whether it be this or eternal sunshine or you know you brought up a show that he's got on um Showtime? Yeah, yep. Yeah, so, I mean, that sounds really interesting, too. Uh, I don't really think I encounter Carrie to, like, Batman Forever uh, and, like, Dumb and Dumber. Like, my dad... (laughs) My mom always makes fun of my dad because she's like, you like stupid things, and everything you laugh at is so stupid and dick and fart jokes. And, you know, like, I can't can't criticize as I do as well. Um, And I think watching Dumb and Dumber as a kid... I I don't remember how many times I rented it, but I remember we rented it a good bit, or we had the DVD, and I can remember that DVD cover so fondly of Jeff Daniels pulling the ears and all this sort of stuff. I've never seen Dumb and Dumber. What? Yeah, I've never seen Dumb and Dumber. I'll, I'll make the I'll I'll confess on the podcast. This it, wow. it looks stupid. No pun intended. Well, it looks dumb. You could say it is the <laughs> is the funnier thing to say in that moment. <laughs> wow. You've never seen I, I mean like look I was I was not going to crucify you for seeing Happy Gilmore cuz like you know I'm in that same boat but now I could be a Roman and put you on that cross to be like you got to watch them. Do it. It's okay. a good movie. It's a good it's like look I'm not going to sit here and be like you know Truman show fuck that he deserves the Oscar for dumb and dumber it's just like right. it's a fun goofy movie. And I never really registered Carrie for like the dramatic talent that he is until I really watched Eternal Sunshine in my my teens. And I'm like, oh man, like that's Jim Carrey. Like Jim Carrey can do these sort of things. Um and I've always admired him and I've I've always like kind of liked Jim Carrey from like an outsider. But I I don't and I guess we should talk about this now. I wish there were like ten more Jim Carrey movies like this or Man on the Moon. And that's my big hang up is there's just not enough of this in the filmography, like the enough, enough of these performances of this ilk where it's there's a, a lot of stuff for me to return to. Like, I think that's great. You know, I I think that the fact that Dumb and Dumber has lived on and people have a really strong relationship with that movie is awesome. But like, what is there to return to besides the same jokes you've heard or like pop culture yeah. references <laughs> that we all recite to each other? I don't know. Whereas... I don't know if I'll ever truly understand Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, right? Like, and I, I, I can go back to that movie endlessly and find new things, or like put on a different perspective, or you know, see Jim Carrey or Winslet's character in a different light. So it's just to me, it's like not squandered talent because I don't want to say that, but it's like direction he went in in the films and the projects he wanted to pursue to me it's almost like tom cruise where it's like i did my magnolia i did my board on the fourth of july and you know there's my cake you guys aren't going to give me my cake then i guess i'm just going to keep cashing the checks and breaking the necks and that just to me is frustrating 
we've talked about this pre-show. He doesn't get Academy Awards for this or uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Or Man on the Moon. Or Man on the Moon. And I I don't want to speak for Jim Carrey, but I think part of that is why we get the late 2000s comedy we kind of get from him. Where if you look at his movies in the 2000s, because uh, I was taking a good time to look at them this, this week, it's like uh, the Grinch movies, which are fine. It's, you know, <laughs> Bruce Almighty. It's Lemony Snicket's under a series of unfortunate events. It's Yes Man. It's a Christmas Carol. He like Mr. Popper's Penguins. You know, like he's also, like I saw all those movies in theaters as a kid, right? Like I I was there, but as an adult, I I haven't seen <laughs> a Christmas Carol since. You know, I've watched right. The Grinch a couple times or whatever, but like that is like a whole decade of of really interesting projects that I would or of potentially interesting projects I would have loved to have seen him in. Imagine like Jim Carrey and like something like the talented Mr. Ripley. Or just something really random and weird. Just, like, throw him in. He could have done so much. I, yeah, it's tricky because, like, I watch Yes Man in theaters and all these sort of things, but they don't really test him. And I remember when he was cast at Kick-Ass 2, I was like, ooh. And I, I don't think I, I actually watched Kick-Ass 2. But I remember, like, hearing the voice he's doing for it and the way he looked and, like, the type of character he was playing. I was really excited about that because, like, that's, again, like, going very far away from it. But then he doesn't really do anything past that. You could his filmography. It's like The Bad Batch, which is like a dystopian movie I haven't heard of. Uh, there's yeah, a couple other cool. indies. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last movies he's made are like Sonic and Sonic 2 is like Dr. Robotnik. And, uh, you know, I don't want to shade him. That's not our intent to be like, hey, he's getting a lot of money for those movies and he's having a ball, it seems. And he's going back to like his classic 90s comedies. Um, but it's just like, I would have loved to see him take more shots with his chances and a stardom. Cause like, go ahead. I, I just, I kind of get it out because I, I just had an epiphany. Mm-hmm. I would love to have seen Jim Carrey have the same career as or not the same career, but like maybe gone like the Nicholas Cage route. I'm always thinking that. Oh, you were, I was, I, I don't know if it's on my notes, but at some point I was thinking this week of like, Jim Carrey had the career and the like talent and the power to do get anything greenlit, you know, like that's just how radical his star was at a certain point. And he could have gone off to make like a pig <laughs> or a Joe. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I was thinking was pig. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or Mandy. Imagine yes. Jim Carrey and Mandy. He'd been great in that. It's just, I, I literally have it in my notes. There's a world where Carrie could have gone the Nicolas Cage route, starring in these wild, oh. weird indie dramas slash horror films. But outside of this, Man of the Moon, Eternal Sunshine, maybe Kick-Ass 2 and Kidding, Carrie never ventured further into the side of himself. Yeah, I I would have loved to see him hook up with like a PTA or someone that really understood his talents as like a really versatile actor. Because in getting back to The Truman Show now, I the way he uses his face in this movie and his Jim Carrey persona is so fucking good. Because I think of the like first moment you really see him is like Truman Truman, where he's like exiting his house. He's like, "Hey, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night." And the way he like, you know, that class is like cock your head back, <laughs> like it's like a very fake like la- laughing, putting your head to the side and like shooting your finger guns at them. But like, it doesn't ever feel like he's doing it to be a joke. It's Truman. And it feels like that's just who Truman is. 
Totally. I forget. Um, I apologize. I forget the actress's name who plays Truman's wife. Laura Linney. Thank you. Laura Linney. She was talking about how a lot of her physicality and her expressionism came from like old Sears Roebuck cal- calendars and like catalogs and old magazines like JCPenney. I thought that was really cool too. It, it reminded me of like exactly what you just said that like kind of like plastic Ken Barbie doll. Like, oh, have yeah. a good day. <laughs> And Carrie is so affable, but never goofy is a thing of like, and this is talking to, to talk to like Carrie's restraint as an actor. There's mm-hmm. a way where he could come into this role and just be Jim Carrey from the mask and like really goofy and hamming it up and having a great time. But he never lets himself become the joke. The way his actions are dumb and dumber are always like, haha, that's funny. I can't believe you did something that stupid or like that goofy with this. It never feels like that. Um, and I've always appreciated about that because there's a self-seriousness he takes to this role as well that's never him, like, pushing it too far. And I think of the scene that we talked about with, like, the roundabout with Meryl, where, like, he could play that scene very loud. He's like, all the cars are back. Like, oh, like, go very, very, like, manic crazy. But there's, like, a frustration to the way he's delivering those lines. It's, like, very, very self-serious and, like, I am a part of this and I feel this character's feelings. Totally. And I also think another great car scene, too, is with – um his wife, Meryl, as they're like leaving the town, the script doesn't like kind of like abandon the fact that he's afraid of water or like to leave the town. He like lets his hands off the wheel. And that is kind of like the comedic and big performance. But it's the same thing yeah. that you said, where it's like he it's it's kind of one hand behind his back. He is being restrained. It's not necessarily big for the sake of being funny. It's big for the sake of him being absolutely terrified. And I love the way he lets himself go in the emotional scenes. I think of when he's talking with Marlon on the pier or whatever it is, where like the road ends. And he's just talking about like, man, like I, I wanted more out of my life than this. And like, I felt like I was crazy for thinking these things, but like, it can't all be this like fixed against me. And the way he plays that sorrow is just really, really well done. Uh, and he doesn't, he doesn't really go back to this well a lot. And it's just kind of a shame. Um, is there anything else you want to say about his performance real quickly or no? Oh, I, th- I think we've we've kind of hit it home. I, I really enjoy the performance. And like you said, it's kind of a shame. I, I wish there was like 10 more of these to pick and choose from and, and analyze and talk about. Terry uh, also was really into the Truman Show. I mean, he only took the year to wait to get it done where he could have just bailed at a certain point. Uh, and he really also was really conscious of like his label at the time of being a comedy actor and wanted to break out of that. And he says that Truman is the fastest he's ever accepted a role. Because he just loved the script. He loved the idea. He loved trying to go off base. And he dropped his usual salary to make $20 million a movie down to $12 million a movie, which speaks to the fact that, like, look, I mean, like, $12 million ain't nothing to scoff at. But for a guy at that point in his career to go, I will purposely lose money to do this movie or to drop my salary demands shows he's so committed to this. And I think it is far and away one of his best choices as an actor. Not a lot of casting widows otherwise. Um, we will do Ed Harris, though. <laughs> Ed yeah. Harris was not the first choice for Kristoff. In fact, he actually didn't even play him on set for the first couple of days because Kristoff was originally played by Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper getting a lot of love on the Road Dog show. Uh, Long time friend of the show. This, I think we talked about him one other time. We were like, Dennis Hopper, what a... What a crazy guy. Um, crazy bastard. Yeah, batshit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> he was fired two days into filming when both Peter Weir and the producer were like, 
this isn't working. Um, <laughs> and we have the power to fire him, so we'll fire him. Don't have it this week. I'm coming back next week with Dennis Hopper impressions. Jack. Um, I guess the audience says that's to look forward to, you know? <laughs> Three weeks in a row of impressions. You're welcome. Wow. Uh, <laughs> they considered a bunch of different actors, but then eventually just settled on Ed Harris. I fucking love Ed Harris in this. I love Ed Harris in general. I love Ed Harris in general too, man. He's a dog. <laughs> um, we've talked about him when we did the Top Gun Maverick like podcast. Always playing a stern or like rigid, calculated, cold person for the most part. Uh, never really gets to be the hero. <laughs> I feel bad for him in that sense. He, d- he kind of has settled into like this villainous role in the back half of his career here, but just an amazing character actor. And like, if you listen to really any Ed Harris interview, a very deep, serious, like yeah. the, the craft of acting is something that he does not joke about. Um, so I really respect his commitment and, you know, not, and it's not serious in the sense of like Daniel day Lewis, where it's like, I'm going to go build a cabin for like six months and figure out how to like, yeah. find oil in the middle of the ground it's serious about the it's like serious about like being on set being accountable being the best you can be like very like i don't know performance based instead of maybe like spiritual sense i think he's a great actor i love ed harris shout out the dog westworld fucked him up because i think everyone corrected after that to be like oh well then we must just make him more the man in black uh i probably recommended it to you before but um he has an hbo like two-part episode uh, thing on I don't remember what it's called anymore. Empire Falls, I think is what it is. He just plays this guy in like Massachusetts that just like owns this like restaurant, and it's about his life, and it's just really well done. Mm-hmm. And like I think in this movie, especially, you see like a very gentleness to Ed Harris, despite the like callousness that he can kind of bring and like the coldness that he brings. Totally, it's it's a father son movie, but it's also like creator creation at the same time yeah and like art artist and not just like Mm. and i thought about this a lot too i wonder if this is a movie partly about like what happens when a writer loses control of his own script (laughs) you know like no way sometimes yeah how sometimes i think you and i have both felt when we were trying to write something it's just like i don't know where this is going anymore but i'm just going to keep writing and i i don't know um and i wonder if that's somewhat of a meditation this is about but like I just love Ed Harris in this movie because, like, he almost feels like funny about it to me, and he makes me laugh a little bit because he's dressed like with like the rings and like the beret, and like that's just Ed Harris. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I watched the behind the scenes stuff we sent and we've talked about before. Of like, I think he has a ponytail in that, and he's also wearing a beret. And I'm like, Ed Harris, whoa, French artiste over here, wonderful, good for him. Um, and I just. I love him in this movie. I also love... Go ahead. I think it's amazing that he wasn't their first choice, too. Like, in that documentary, oh. it talks about how, like, if they hadn't found him, they probably wouldn't have had the movie, really, because they just didn't have a Kristoff after Dennis Hopper. So I think that's amazing to me that, like, sometimes I think we've talked about movies where it's like, this they couldn't get this guy, so they put this guy, and it's like, ah, well, I would really like to have seen the original person. I don't think this movie works nearly as well if it, it doesn't have Ed Harris in that role. No, he gets nominated for this too. We should definitely just say, um, mm. doesn't win, but like it's a well deserved nomination, I think. Totally. Also, want to shout out Laura Lenny. I, <laughs> I, I haven't really watched a ton of Laura Lenny stuff prior to like two years ago when my roommate sat me down and was like, "Let's watch Ozarks," 
which is like a show that is it's got its issues. I don't I wouldn't say it's the best show ever, but she is always really, really strong in it. And I think that she does a great really? job in this movie of like playing like an empty soulless vessel <laughs> and kind of like Ed Harris, where like, I think she's kind of pigeonholed into that a little too often. Um, but she's so fucking good at it. Like the way she's like, hi honey. Or like the way she's like pointing the knife at him and to be like, look at this great knife I have. And then contrast that with like, um, the openness where she's like, you know, there is no personal and private life for me. You know, the Truman show is my life. You know, this is what I care about. Finally, within her, be like, can someone get this guy under control? Like, she does not care for Truman at all, I feel. But she does such a good job as an actress of, like, selling this, like, facade of it all. Yeah, I think she's the best, like, um, example of, like, the phoniness of the world throughout the movie. Yeah. She's literally just, like you said, a vessel for product placement. Oh, you should get new one of those new up rotaries. We should just throw that own lawn, old yeah. lawnmower away. <laughs> like, he's just like. Okay, who are you talking to? You know, I think that stuff's great. And like we talked about, like um, Peter Weir and his wife, who I think was also part of like the production team, like showed like old Sears commercials and old Sears like magazines to Laura Linney to kind of give her like the physicality or like maybe the posture and mannerisms that she was looking for. She said that was a huge piece of like her prep. And I found that to be fascinating too. It's like she basically created her package off of advertisements. So we're like, we just want you to be, be an advertisement. (laughs) Well, and she's one of the couple actors. And I would say the most prominent of them, that is an actor playing an actor, playing a role um, where she has to play Hannah Gill playing Meryl. And, but it's also more, you know, like it's a very complicated thing that she could try and do. Very meta. Well, yeah. Yeah. And like the panic that she genuinely does feel when Sherman's like, let's just get out of here. And like, we'll just do this. And like, she feels like she's straddling the line between like I have to be careful of myself, but also kind of rein this guy in because if he goes off the wire, my job is gone, and like I am making bank over Truman because I think in the behind the scenes, she also created this whole backstory to her of like she's about ambition and power, and she'll put like an extra increase in her raise if she has to sleep with Truman, where it's all so transactional for her, and Laura Linney's just like so fucking good at it. Like I just, she's the best. She's the best. Uh, shout out to Noah Emmerich. You know, classic, just like that guy. Just great in this movie as, uh, as Marlon. Do you want to talk about Marlon right now? Or do we want to wait for yeah. him? Let's do, let's do Marlon, because Marlon's got some skeletons in his closet. I think Marlon's character is the biggest betrayal of the whole entire movie to Truman. Oh, yeah. Because think about it. Like, Meryl is like his love and, and kind of gets placed into his life. Marlon and Truman are friends as young boys. So this is your best friend, your confidant. You know, this is the person you you go to when things go wrong. Like, they're like brothers. So to me, that is the biggest betrayal. But like you said, I love that Noah Emmerich kind of came up with this package where he was like, well, in order for my character to be in this world with Truman, I have to be from someone who is willing to subject me to the same things. So he kind of yeah. came up with this like domineering stage mom presence that kind of like threw him into this world. And that's kind of how he rationalizes it. It's like, he's no different than Truman almost in a sense. I found that to be fascinating subtext to the character and really kind of explains like, 
I don't know, his delivery when he's getting fed the line seems like while he is giving an earnest performance, again, so layered and like meta in the sense of like he's giving a layered performance to Truman. But on the inside, you can tell that it's actually kind of killing him to be like, you know, I'd walk out in traffic for you, Truman. I love <laughs> this. He's like, oh, man, you got pneumonia or whatever. Like there was a month where you were gone in like college. You know, Marlon wasn't in college. He was recovering from a coke habit. Let's just be real. That dude, like, that dude is all sorts of messed up. Because you think about the societal pressure that Truman's under to be like, hey, we're going to just make this world for you. Marlon has to be the best friend that's selling him this and, like, locking him in a prison. But Marlon gets to walk out. You know, like, Marlon gets to go home at the end of all this or whatever it is and have, like, some semblance of a life. And he just has to, like, lock the key for Truman to be like, all right, see you later. Um, and I love his performance on the on the pier, whatever again, where he's like, but that would have to mean that I'm in it as well, Truman. Of like, you really like you could see how Truman could be convinced by this guy, but there's also like a threatening almost to him as well. You know, yeah. like, I, I I love the scene where he comes storming into the basement. He's like, Truman, I got two Brucies with your name and my name on them, or whatever. He's like, Where are you, you little scamp? And then he like pulls the closet open, and there's a real like he could be a dangerous guy because i think i think marlin's got some skeletons man i think i think that dude's been slinging some dope around hollywood boulevard i think he's i, I, I don't know why this time around i was like marlin's a shady dude that could like bury you under the brooklyn bridge it's a very very late performance and i just like i know we're we're doing a good job of staying on track for this episode for once which is nice but like again just the meta in like subversive like tactics of this movie and like how it operates on so many levels like there's this whole other level that we as an audience know an audience is reacting to this like will truman figure out the truth from marlin or will you know he escape the bubble it's just it's it's making you think on like so many levels more than just about the actual story that you're watching also want to shout out Natasha Macaloni. I don't I don't know if that's how you pronounce it exactly. She plays Lauren slash Sylvia. She is so good in like the very limited screen time she has, I feel. Uh she has a much bigger role in the show Californication. She's great in that. And I love that like I buy their love story despite there only being like what five minutes of it. Um it she's like the only thing that feels real in a world of cardboard and plastic or plastic. Uh I just like the way she's, she calls out at Harris and then the way she reacts just to like watching a screen. I'm trying yeah. to like put myself in her shoes as an actress where Peter Weir is like, we're going to lock you in a room and you're just going to have to react to a television screen of like this awful feeling in your stomach of like Truman's is not going to escape or that Truman might escape and all these sort of things. I think the brilliant thing they do with her character too, again, just the script is so smart and so well at telling the story is all of the scenes of their love is interrupted or broken apart or like, you know, there's an outside force that takes her from the prom or when she tries to tell Truman the truth, her dad comes and takes her and says that she's crazy. So their love keeps getting torn away from them. But what like makes that more poignant is like, they're the moments where Truman starts to realize that there's something wrong with the world around him. So there's almost like this, like there's like, it's, it's again, operating on two levels where it's like, this is my, my need is to escape this, this world, this this made up surrealist portrait, but my real want is to like find true love, and and they're both interconnected, which I think is so smart. 
I think he's so good at it, and the relationship is so interesting because, like, the only moments that he ever has freedom is with her, and those are the happiest things of her because she's never like, "I've written the script to be this way" or anything like that. She is grabbing him by the hand, like, "Let's run away together," and let's just go to a beach and hang out and have fun. And it's not manufactured at all. It is not for an ad placement. It is not for anything. It's because she truly does feel for him in a way, and love him, and he loves her, and it's just like a very beautiful dynamic. Um, of like, he has all these like free Truman posters behind her. Yeah, <laughs> like there's a whole world to that character that I feel of like she's like on protests and stuff like that outside like the dome, and she just does a really good job at it. Um, yeah. shout out young Paul Giamatti. Just um, <laughs> <laughs> what's up, Paul? Uh, Phil Baker Hall. Uh, you know, nice to see him. Uh, he doesn't have a lot to do with this movie as network executive. That kind of sucks, but he's good. <laughs> he's serviceable in this. Yeah. Uh, finally, not a cast member, but I'd be kind of remiss not to mention the composers. Uh, Burkhard Dalwitz, Philip Glass, and Voja Killar. I love their score. I-, I was really watching the movie when I have like a bunch of check marks each time something really pops up for me. I put four check marks next to the score. Because it, it does a really good job of straddling the idea of like, this is the stuff you would hear in this TV show, but also it is emotionally connecting with you as a viewer that's objectively watching this movie. Mm. Uh, and I just, it's it's a great, like the piano, like I, I forgot how like kind of iconic the score is to me and like how much I can remember pretty easily and uh, recall it. It's manufactured diegetic sound, which is so strange. Yeah. Like, that, like what? how many movies can say they've done that? And I love the way that you could see uh, Philip Glass playing the piano in the room with them. Yeah. They all got those weird little earpieces in. (laughs) And he's like, all right, turn this up. So like kind of sad, but not too sad. He just like goes to it. It goes to work. Yes. Oh, it's just like, it's so good. Uh, The Truman Show did really well at the box office as well. Speaking of good, it earned $264.1 million against a $60 million budget. Uh, It is the 10th highest grossing movie in Jim Carrey's career. It's above Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, Eternal Sunshine, and The Cable Guy. So that's pretty impressive feats to be better than those comedies. Wow. I never would have thought that either. I thought those guys would be, would be ahead of Truman. But, you know, Especially I, with like like home box office now or streaming and all that. I thought like Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, all those would be up on top. Yeah, well, hey, you know, it's crazy, Nick. <laughs> People like movies about the human condition. Who would have thunk... You mean to tell me people like movies about adult ideals, Josh? You're lying. You mean to tell me that people make movies about sophisticated ideas about creation and existentialism and people like them? It's like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They actually love those movies because they think about them too. Um, as for awards, The Truman Show, it, it got around. It gets a bunch of knowledge for the British Academy Film Awards, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild. The Golden Globes, the Academy Awards, and the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. You know, career high honors there. Shout out mm. Ed Harris. He won the Best Supporting Blockbuster Award. Career Let's moment. Let's go. He must have been thrilled about that. He has that on a shelf next to everything else. He's like, hey, 72 years old, Ed Harris got that Blockbuster Award. Let's go. <laughs> Overall, <laughs> Truman nabbed three Golden Globes, but no Oscars. And I want to talk about the Jim Carrey Oscar thing, because we mentioned it and why we think he should have been nominated and everything like that. Here are the best actor nominees from that year instead of Jim oh Carrey. <laughs> Roberto Benigni for Life is Beautiful. It's Tom Hanks for Saving Private Ryan. 
It's Ian McKellen for Gods and Monsters. It's Nick Nolte for Affliction. Spoiler alert. We're letting that count, Nick. It's a movie about New Hampshire. No, I know. Shout out Paul Schrader, too. It's a Paul Schrader flick. I haven't seen it. Nick Nolte could be off on it, but guess what? I 603 represent. I got to just, we got to leave it be. What's up? And then finally, Edward Norton for American History X. Did Carrie get snubbed, do you feel? Yeah. I think there's three I think there's three great performances in there, right? I think Ed Norton, um obviously Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan, and we're not we're not removing Nick Nolte for completely biased yeah, reasons. I I haven't seen Affliction either. Shout out Paul Schrader the dog. But yeah, like the I other two to. New Hampshire, let's go. I've never seen Life is Beautiful. And like I'm sure that that guy's I brilliant have. in that film. You have? Uh yeah, let's get into the Roberto Benini thing. Um Boff Dog. Uh, this is who uh, I took an Italian cinema course. I've probably mentioned it before because I sound very snooty whenever I do it. And this thank was one of the it. movies that we we had. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> that we had to watch because this movie won Best Picture, I think. Uh, no, this is Shakespeare in Love, isn't it? Yeah, this is a bad year for the Oscars. A lot of things wrong. <laughs> and I mean, look, I- I'll be honest with the audience. Like, it didn't help that I watched it over like at my house. It was a winter course, so it was like me just in my room watching Life is Beautiful. Uh, but I fucking hate that movie. It is, it is, it, I, I don't like it. So for those, you don't know, do you know what it's about at all? So it's a movie about, um, I believe they're Italian Jews that are picked up in World War II to go to the concentration camps. It's a very heavy movie in that regard. But the father, who's like this very like whimsical goofball, pretends to his child son that like this is all game and that the concentration camp isn't the concentration camp yeah i i haven't seen it but i have heard of this film now it's you're ringing a bell with that yes and my problems that are not that like it's disrespectful or anything like that or like that i feel it's it's gross that like they would try and make a comedy about you know the holocaust or anything like that my problem with it is that it's so goofy and whimsical but in like a slapsticky way that doesn't connect with me comedically like it, it just, it didn't make me laugh. Roberto Bonini is so loud and like, oh, like he's doing like the very big performance. And I, I mean, maybe I'm misremembering, but there's never a moment to me where Roberto Bonini like really sells like a really big emotional performance to that movie to me. And I just don't know why Hollywood was like, fucking Roberto Bonini, life is beautiful. Let's go. It, it, to me, it it sounds like a content nomination. It's it sounds like an academy. It sounds par for the course for the academy to do something like this. It's like this is a big movie talking about. You know, the the academy likes poignant moments. Like and now it seems like nice moments and, and easy safe moments. But like they like poignant, like difficult things like this. So it seems to me to be a content nomination. It did make two hundred thirty million at the box office. Um, it gets. It was a thing. Before. Yeah, it was it was a big thing in the culture. It, it gets best picture, best director, best actor, best original screenplay, best foreign language film, best film editing, and best music. Uh, it wins three of those. And I just, I, I mean, no shade to Roberto Benigni, but it, he's a talented guy. I just think what Carrie's doing in this movie is so much more drastic than what Roberto Benigni's doing. I think I agree with you. I think this is a, a good example as to why the categories have been expanded more you're able to have more nominations um but i think on the show we've talked about the oscars a lot and i don't want to like 
kind of be like a broken record. But to me, even this is a really, really egregious year where things got wrong. This is a Shakespeare in love year. But they always get it wrong. And I know that it's easy to look back on these things in retrospect. But like, it's just, there's so, there's not like a ton of room for error. But there are five to ten nominees, right? So like, you have a a wide pool of performances to pick from. And like, I don't know, these are the ones that kind of want to put, going to be like, these are going to endear for the next 30, 40 years. I don't know. And I think the Truman Show has had a much more lasting legacy than Life is Beautiful. Yes. Because I, 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 I just think people know the Truman Show of like, it's a good movie. Everyone in America has watched it. It's very smart. It's very poetic. It's very prophetic. <laughs> and I, I just, I just don't know why they were just like shunning Carrie. And I, I don't know what that is about. I don't know why. I haven't seen Gods and Monsters, so I can't say for sure if Ian McCallum should have been nominated. You know, Nick Nolte we've talked about a lot, so you know that fuck off. Uh but like I just ah it's upsetting because I think Carrie he shouldn't have won. Uh I think if anyone should have won, it probably should have been Hanks again, honestly, if totally. we look into those five. So it's not like a thing of like, oh, the wrong guy we got nominated didn't win. But it's just it's bad. It's a bad, bad choice. Uh do you feel though that this is like Jim Carrey's best performance? Is it is it this or Eternal Sunshine for you? Let me rewatch Eternal Sunshine. It's been a little bit and and, and give an answer. But as right as it stands right now, yes. I think Eternal Sunshine might be a more I think Eternal Sunshine might be a more emotional performance. Um but I, I watch the Truman Show more often than Eternal Sunshine, obviously, because I can't give you a concrete answer. It's tricky because, like, I feel the same way, but Eternal Sunshine's a hard watch. Like, it's hard it is. for me to go, go back to that movie because, like, I, I wouldn't say I love that movie because it's been a while since I watched it and I was probably too young to watch it the first time I did. Um, but it, it's not, like, a fun experience. <laughs> it's really it's a very... Well, and I also... I. I think I have a little fatigue with that movie because it's a very film school movie. And, mm. yeah. I, and I don't people are like, The Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which is very much that movie of like, Kate Winslet's so quirky and weird and perfect. Exactly. Um, and it's just like, oh, you know, maybe I like a female lead that's not just like quirky and weird and we can have those two Hollywood. How prophetic The Truman Show kind of is. You kind of look at where reality TV has come since 1998. And it's ironic that like Survivor and the Big Brother come shortly thereafter, where like our entire culture, uh, I guess worldwide, really has seen like this obsession with like quote unquote reality TV, and that has very little in common with the real world. And it's like <laughs> turned, it's turned real life people into people we have to like characters that we root for or against, and it's very very weird. Yeah, I have a question for you. What's your relationship to reality TV? I watched, and I, I, I guess I'm ashamed of it. I watched the Kardashians a lot with my mom when I was a kid, because I don't know why. <laughs> I had a, I, I, really I have an idea as to why, but <laughs> no, it wasn't that because I was like eight, so I wasn't even like having like sexual feelings about them. I was just like, oh, what's going on with these chicks, you know? Or like, Rob's such a loser. Like, you know, I felt that as a kid. <laughs> I don't feel that way now, Rob Kardashian. I feel like I think you're the greatest victim of the Kardashian thing. But like, anyway. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, but like, I, I did feel I did watch it as a kid. But ever, ever since I kind of grown up, I've just 
like impractical jokers i guess would be the only rowdy tv show thing i kind of watch even mildly now so i was like kind of my generation grew up i grew up in like that kind of sweet spot of like the real world wasn't like as fake and shitty as it was like jersey shore was a huge thing i remember true life you know, like, um, I remember one summer when my mom was working, I might have talked about this on the show. I just like sat and ate Twinkies and watched like Rock of Love, Flavor of Love, I Love New York, oh like just God. junk fodder, you know? So <laughs> it's fascinating to me that like we we gravitate towards this junk. But I think the real point of it too, because I just kind of want to talk about your question, and I think it's a great one, is escapism. Mm. No, I don't, I don't watch that stuff anymore, but I live with someone who loves reality TV. Who, who's a brilliant person and I love them dearly, but their their whole thing when I kind of push back on them, like you're so smart and like you know so much. Why do you watch this fake stuff? You know it's not real. It's because you, you want to turn your brain off. I, I don't want to have to think and like dissect a film or analyze a TV show and why they put the camera here or why the drapes are that color. Some people just want to turn their brain off and just be entertained. I think that's a- it's a giant part of it. I think the Truman show is so smart about realizing that way before it even occurs is that people talk about the Truman show within the world of like, it's this inspirational story and like, it's so genuine and comforting and everything like that when it really is nothing but walking a guy in a giant. <laughs> so like manufacture. It's about terrifying. It's awful. <laughs> but I can understand that perspective because when you get home from a long day of whatever you're doing, and you just sit down and you watch like these people like have these catty arguments. It distracts you from all of your actual real life bullshit. And I think mm-hmm. that's, I mean, very obviously the appeal of reality TV is like, not only is it that, but you can also see like these magnificent things that you otherwise can't see in real life. Like the, oh, the real houses in New Jersey are going to Cancun for the mid-season finale. So now audience is like, oh, Cancun, that looks nice. That looks cool. Look at that expensive car. Look at that expensive watch. Look at that expensive dress. And it's like an accessible entryway into a world a lot of America will never get to like go into. Totally. And that's a great point you just hit on too, right? It's called reality TV, but like all of the locales, all of the things that they're doing are so disconnected from reality. It's it's not our reality. We're we're kind of like putting our head in a VR system, I guess, and and yeah. <laughs> experiencing the reality maybe we want. Like our big problem is like we have to throw a birthday party, but also get the Lambo detailed. You know? Yeah. And that's what's really like weird about it to me is that everyone who watches these shows must know this person would not be doing this thing if the camera was not on, or that this person would not act this way if the camera was not on. And like my mom watches a ton of the real housewife stuff. So like every now and then I'll come downstairs and she's watching it. And there's always someone screaming about someone else, but like you said this and you did that and blah, 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 blah. blah. And like <laughs> real people get into real arguments. That's hundred percent true. But the frequency with which these women get into these arguments <laughs> and the cattiness of it, it's just like fucking insane. Well, it's all it's all it's all fabricated, right? It's a yes. lot of those arguments and the tension is created through the edit. You know, those events are not like happening simultaneously or even necessarily in the same week. It's just how they cut it up and edit it. It's it's manufactured drama or manufactured tension, and like that's what people want to tune into. It'd be like, oh, oh, they're getting catty. She she's texting her boyfriend. Uh, let's see what's happening. Oh with shit! James. Teresa said that. Oh yeah. god! Like yeah, exactly. It's that. And I, I think what's really telling to me is that, I mean, we've talked about our love for other podcasts before, Tell Them Steve Dave, 
um, they did the show uh, Comic Book Men on AMZ that ran like seven seasons, the reality show. They do a show on their Patreon called Tales Behind the Fake Counter, where they go into like how the show was actually done. And it's really interesting because they have like the producer of the show and the showrunner, and they talk about how they like did things. And 90% of the plots that they talk about on that show, they're like, oh yeah, we just made that up. Oh yeah, like yeah. you guys never do that. Like, like as someone who listens to like what Walt Flanagan does every week to then go watch Comic Book Man, it's not even him. It's a completely different person. And it's just stunning to me that like either people don't care or people are like, whatever, I, I I'm into it anyways. And that's not a shade thing. It's just like I personally don't understand that like enjoyment of it. I don't either, but you know, we've we've talked about this show a little bit on the podcast too, but I just keep com- I can't get Barry out of my head. I, I just like, it's just stuck in there and it won't leave. And I just think about like the mask we put on, right? Like you and I aren't the same people on this podcast as we are off of this podcast. You know, we, we put on these masks and we put on these facades for people to maybe impress or to, you know, downplay our intelligence or, you know, make ourselves more appealing for the opposite sex. Like there's all these like layered things that we do to like kind of, I don't know, escape who who we who we are i mean yeah like we're <laughs> the spoiler we're not as smart as we come off on the show like it takes like <laughs> a week of research and like texting each other questions or reading a reddit yeah. thread or like whatever it is to like come off halfway intelligent um right and i don't think we're as fake as a lot of other people kind of claim to be but no like, i'm not saying that right right but there is an era of like everyone is doing something a little bit differently than what they normally would do because they know the mics are live or the camera is recording or whatever you want it to be yes exactly um, and i think the truman show is just so intelligently like smart about that intelligently smart intelligently dark about like how <laughs> how scary this is and how scary it's become uh, 23 it, years ahead of its time 24 it makes me wonder, do you think a Truman Show is possible? Is something like the Truman Show a real thing that could happen in our world? Mm, good question. Because I, like, I don't know how different Big Brother is from this, other than that like, people yeah. know the stakes, and they know what's going on. I, like, listen, from a legal standpoint and like a semantics, like realistic standpoint, yeah. absolutely not. But like, if we're talking in the like, sense of you know, bullshit podcasting, like, I think you could probably find some people who would volunteer to do something like this. Yes. I mean, there's people <laughs> who volunteer for Naked and Afraid, which is like, go yeah. get naked on live TV for the entire world and like rummage through a forest. Unquestionably, there are mothers who would send up their kids to like, make them be the true men of this world. Uh, totally. and it's scary. And, but I think the only reason people would not watch this is because the, <laughs> the conceit of the Truman Show is that it falls from birth to where he is now. Middle America would not tune in from the Truman Show of like ages like one to four. They'd be like, "This shit's boring." He's just shit the diaper, <laughs> you know. Like, like they just get out of it very quickly and they just be bored. Yeah, um, I I do have a question for you too. Like regarding that, like, do you think it would be one of those things where we'd have like multiple? Trumans where it's like you know in GTA where you can be like Trevor yeah. or you could switch to Michael and like it just like you like zoom over the map and you drop into yeah. a new place do you think it would be like one season we follow Truman the next one was somebody else or you think you know because like we got to d- diversify the profile it can't just be like the same white cis male that we follow for oh oh I see you need some like we get like a Marlin spinoff of like one season of like Marlin and you know whatever yeah. he's doing on the boat you know, yeah like 
Oh, unquestionably, because like here's the other darker thing about like Hollywood today and why the Truman Show is so funny. They would be like, "This IP works. Let's get multiple versions of that IP. I want yeah. an Indian version of the Truman Show. I want a Chinese version of the Truman Show. I yeah. want an African version of the Truman Show, and let's get the Truman Show spinoff. Like, look at what fucking Disney's done with like three movies from the seventies. They're like a Soka TV show, Alkalite TV show. I want a Han Solo movie. I want a Rogue One movie. That's like four properties at the least. Let's remake They're Little all- Mermaid." <laughs> People know that IP and it made money. Let's make more. It, it's that simple. So if the Truman Show were a real thing, oh yeah. my god, there'd be like there'd be like a fucking Meryl Holiday special of her, like <laughs> like direct like nurses, whatever. It'd be everywhere. Yeah. Um, how much of this world is real? Do you feel of the Truman? Not obviously the Truman Show is fake, but like, do any of the people in Truman's life actually feel anything for him? Do you feel? I think Kristoff feels things for. Um, Truman. I think they become a little bit more evil as the film go on, but you know, I think Kristoff is one of the best producers slash showrunners of all time. I mean, the way that that guy can can craft tension and 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 pull off a story on the fly is unparalleled. I mean, what a way to create a compelling hour of television every single day for ten thousand eight hundred ninety eight days? I can't I do anything for ten days straight. <laughs> Dude, can I get Kristoff as like a professor that I can go like hang out with? I, I learned so much from him. Um I I wonder a lot about like his mother, um, who we'll talk about later, but like he does and I don't know how like weird this is or whatever, but she has the line when they're walking around the street looking for him, where she's like, if only he could hear my voice, and she yells, Truman, Truman. And I don't know if that's her being like, if he would hear, he would come out and then we could capture him, or if it's he would hear it and he would feel confident and I would know that he's safe. You know, like, there's this level of questioning that I still feel with this movie where, like, outside of Meryl, I think everyone's true feelings towards Truman are entirely up in the air. You could tell me that, you know, his mom cares for him and his dad cares for him and that Marlon really cares for him. But otherwise, I don't know for sure. I think the only person who kind of has, like, a moral conundrum throughout the movie is Marlon. I think everybody else is there for the paycheck. I think his mom is saying that. So, like, he'll be comforted to come out and, like, then we can capture him. I think that the whole thing with his father too, when he's like walking around too, he goes from being like, like that goes from being like the emotional anchor of the movie, no pun intended, to him being like, oh, this guy's the same thing. He's just a slimy bastard in a suit. Well, yeah, because there's that idea of like he breached the show to warn Truman, but then Kristoff must have just offered him a bunch of money to just let it go, and that he accepted. Accepts you know, it, like, and he's like a willingly trying to find Truman too, and like cleans yes. up and drops his character and all that. Yes. Um, the the Kristoff thing is interesting to me because I'm of two minds. I think there's several moments where like he's quote unquote brushing Truman's hair, which is just the screen. Um, and he's like trying to comfort like Truman as best as he can from like his perspective. Um, and the way he's talking about him is just like, Hey, I care for you and I'm looking out for you and I did all this for you. But there's a moment where Ed Harris turns in that final moment where Truman's just standing there with his back to him, he just goes Talk to me. Say something. Well, say something, goddammit. You're on television. You're live for the whole world. And he's not saying it of like, I want to hear you say something profound, or I want to hear you finally speak your mind. Like, he's laughing as he says it. And he's like, you're live for the whole world! Because, like, to him, this is just a game, kind of, I feel, uh, to Kristoff. Because, like, he just wants to get the best ending possible. And when Truman escapes, he's not like, oh, good for him almost, or like, I'm happy that Truman gets to finally live a, live, like, a fuller life. 
he like cradles the iPad or whatever he's holding and is like bent over like, God damn it, he broke me. Like I, I didn't he beat me. Uh there there's this kind of overarching theme to me that like there like we were talking about art and artists and all that stuff, but like having that creative thumbprint and like almost like a magnet following it wherever it goes. And yeah. when that like connection breaks and you lose that power, like you said, it's not him saying, I want to finish my show on a compelling note with this young man. It's oh man, he ruined my my finale. He ruined my plan. Been foiled. He also goes out of his way to try and kill Truman. <laughs> Yes, which is also a pretty dark moment. Which I don't know if that works all the way because it doesn't. It does feel like it kind of comes out of nowhere. I do love that it completely raises the stakes of the movie to like unrealistic terms, as it's already a pretty unrealistic movie. Do you think any of this is an act of love for Kristoff, or do you think it's just like a pursuit of art? Of like, I want to see like a scientific art experiment of what happens if you make this. Uh, I think this is a pursuit of control. Yeah. Yeah. Because he does talk about, like, I gave Truman the chance to lead a normal life. The world, the place you live in is a sick place. Sea Haven is the way the world should be. Um, and there's a there's an element of truth to that. Uh, of, like, he did create a world where, like, someone who's a nobody in any other circumstance is, like, the most recognizable face on the earth and is, like, a star. People love him, quote-unquote, but it's conditional love. Um, but I don't think it's enough there to be, like, he cares for him truly. That's love on his terms. Which it's kind of like, uh, do you find this to be an optimistic or a pessimistic film? <sighs> Again, it's one of those things where we've talked about, right? Like this movie kind of lives on after the screen. I think of Chasing Amy too. I've been thinking about that movie a lot too. Like what what's Holden's life after? Like my favorite movies do that. You know, they kind of grab a hold of you and they don't want to let go. You don't want to just may- maybe necessarily move on to the next flick as easily. So I've been kind of stuck on that question because you put it in here and I saw it and I'm like, Man, on one hand, I'm I'm so happy that Truman has kind of broken free from this like monotony and this like fallacy. But at the same time, it's like, what is life for Truman outside of the bubble? What, like you said, he's, you know, he's not going to be able to live an anonymous life at all in any way, shape, or form. Like he's not going to be able to love naturally the way that you know you can just be like, oh, this person means what they say to me when they tell me they love me, or they're going to come back, or that they they they're not going to tell anybody my secret, you know? So his whole, he's basically starting over from like age six. And there's this whole question to me of like, did he get paid for any of this? Like, is there a salary that he gets yeah. or is everyone else being paid around him? And he's just stuck. Cause like, I guarantee you whatever degree he has is not from a real school. Number one. And number two, he purposely like succeeded in his test, no matter what answers he could have given. Because the plot line necessitates that he goes on and graduates college. I find it pessimistic about society, but optimistic about people, almost. Because if this truly to me was like a dark, depressing, like sad movie, Shun would give up his free will and go back to the house and just be like, fine, I'll be your toy. But he gets out and he like says it out of spite of like, in case I don't see you. And he goes on to live his life however he chooses to live it. And now that he finally has that free will, he can do what he wants. And I find that really interesting and that there's other people out there who are just like cheering him on. Like the audience that we see throughout the movie, um, some of which we'll get to in a minute. um, None of them are like, no, he can't escape. Fuck Truman. Like they're all rooting for Truman. And like when he gets out, they're all like, yay, like he he did it or whatever. Like 
kind of good for him sort of thing, you know? And I find that compelling. And I think that's kind of optimistic about it. And I think if they didn't have the shot of like Warren running down the stairs to go meet him eventually, I'd find it to be much more pessimistic. But as it is, I find it to be hopeful about where Truman's headed and what people are capable of in face of the giant corporation. Yeah, I think you nailed it with, with like kind of pessimistic about society, but optimistic about people. Do you have a favorite random viewer while we're on the topic? Oh, it's the dude in the bathtub. Okay. Can we talk about him real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Keith. I found a 27-second yes. compilation of all yes. <laughs> it is. I'm going to shout it out. It's from a person named Weem. There's 64 subscribers. But yep. this view has, this has 263,000 views. It is simply titled... The Truman Show, but it's just the guy in the bathtub. Yep. Fucking great A stuff Brilliant. from Terry Calamari. Just like, forget Carrie getting the Oscar. It goes to Terry, I think, um, for Man in the Bathtub. Just a tremendous piece of work from him. You can do it! Hold on! You can do it! Hold on! <laughs> He's the best. I'm watching the compilation right now. He's like... He doesn't get up. He has like it looks like jelly beans at the foot of his bathtub. He yeah. falls asleep in the tub. He he goes to sleep with Shroom. He's got like a Merrill life raft that he just like stares at lovingly. Mm-hmm. Love He's all the product clean. placement of the show in his place. <laughs> that dude's never clean despite being in the bath all the time. Like he doesn't he doesn't wash himself. Um, he has like such a wide smile when the show comes back on from transmission, and he weeps up and he. But he like puts his hand on the thing. He's like, "Oh, this is the best." I just yeah. the the guy in the bathtub. Shout out to him, man! Just having a, a great life. Hundred percent, making the most of his twenty eight seconds of screen time. Do you have a favorite scene? Um, I don't know if I have a favorite scene, but I'll shout out some of my favorite shots. I think the silhouette shot at night with the rain falling on Truman is beautiful. I love the lighting in that scene. Um, I love all the shots of like the suburbia area, just kind of like the waxy houses and all that stuff feels like a set. So just some of the settings, I would say, I don't necessarily have a favorite scene, but I do love just hanging out in this world. That makes sense. I love the review of Kristoff when we first kind of get to meet him and Mm -hmm. like finally be like, Oh shit, there's someone behind this and someone who has like a real control over all of this um, is great, greatly terrifying. I like the scene between Marlon and Truman on the pier. It really is the most emotional scene to me in some ways of like, I have to lie to you, but I also do care for you. And I don't really know what to do, but I'm going to just peddle the lie. Yeah. Uh, okay, Colonel Tom Parker Award. I only have three nominees this week. You know, there's not a long list. Uh, Holland Taylor is Truman's mother. You know, she's she's a little everywhere with the accent at times. Not entirely sure what that was, but you know she's okay. Uh, Paul Paul Giamatti is he eligible? I don't think he's bad in this. I kind of like Paul Giamatti. No. I think the only reason I wrote him because like he's distracted because he's Paul Giamatti. Yeah, he's got the goatee and everything. Yeah, he's he's a little he's a little gregarious. I mean, the winner. <laughs> It's, it's the it's the dog in the bathtub all day. Can we just say it at three? The man yeah, in the let's go, baby. <laughs> you can do it. Hold on. Hold on. 
He's clutching like the side of his shower. He's just having a great time. Terry Calamari, congratulations. You're the Colonel Tom Parker Award this week. And uh, I think that's it for us. Yes, I think that is it for us. Josh, this is a great pick. I was glad to to go back and rewatch this at 25 years. Well, thank you. Good pick. I don't know where we're going next week. You know, we might stick with 90s funny guys trying to be serious. We might be doing some, some, some uncut gems around here. So is it? Wait, hold on. Is that... Are you doing Punch Drunk? I might be doing Uncut Joms. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I, I, you got me a little, like... And no, I'm not picking Punch Drunk Love, Josh. <laughs> Ever. <Okay. laughs> That'll be a you pick. Okay. All right. Well... Anyways, folks, like, rate, subscribe. Check us out on Instagram. Road underscore dogs underscore podcast. Road dogs out. And in case we don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.